The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Well, first of all, welcome to the 47th annual meeting of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Um, I want to thank President Giuliano and Dean Yu for providing us this wonderful venue for this, um, this meeting. People always ask me, you know, why did I leave Wall Street to come to the National Committee? And the easy answer is days like today make my job just wonderful. The opportunity to sit with Admiral Locklear, you know, the honor and the amount of information that I glean from his comments is something which is just so wonderful that I never could have experienced it when I was on Wall Street. And for those of you who don't know how big a job he has, who don't know what PACOM is, you have to think about PACOM stretches from the coast of California to India, from the Arctic to the Antarctic. It's got, you guys will correct me if I'm wrong, I think 50% of the world's population. So it is a big job. And when you see someone, now we of course have two PACOM, former PACOM commanders on our board, so I want to be careful to say, he follows in a long line of great PACOM commanders. But as I often say, and people who've heard me talk about the, uh, the Zhujibu, the personnel department of the Chinese Communist Party is always very careful to appoint great people who have been trained in all sorts of different areas before they ascend to the highest levels. And I often say, sometimes we don't do that so well. But in this case, we have done it spectacularly. You've got his resume, his, his biography, so I won't repeat it, but you can see that he's had seven commands, so training in commands. He has had great onshore experience in terms of really understanding how, how the military works. And has got more decorations than you could name. Or if I name them all, I would say we wouldn't have any time to hear his speech. So what I'd like to do now is have us all give a warm welcome to Admiral Locklear. He'll speak for about 20 minutes. I'll ask some questions, and then you all will ask some questions. But a warm welcome. There he would be. <laughs> Aloha. Uh, thank you, Steve, and, and thank you all for uh, spending a few minutes this afternoon. I, mean, I feel humbled to have all of you take the time out of your day to, to hear from the PACOM commander. Uh, I would like to say thank you for the, the magnificent Waikiki weather. I was a little, dreading a little bit coming out here because the weather changes are so severe, but I got here, and it's just about like it was in Pearl Harbor when I left, so thank you. Uh, before I begin, let me just uh, comment and say that uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to the people of uh, Oklahoma and the Midwest uh, as they 
uh, endure serious suffering last night and today and into the future as it goes out to uh, all peoples of the world who, can't, who aren't in control of their, their circumstances and are suffering. So uh, today's an important day for me to be able to talk to you and to, to address you particularly on your 46th year of promoting U.S.-China uh, relationships. Uh, and this institution continues to provide a very valuable platform for us to be able to shape the future of really what is one of the most important bilateral relationships in the world uh, for the benefit of both of our nations, but I'm kind of looking downstream and thinking about my four grandsons and their children and what kind of world they will inherit. And it's very important that we, that we think about this and that we get this relationship right. So the past several weeks I've been thinking about what could I possibly say to this group. In fact, many of the security perspectives that I would typically highlight are products of people in this audience, so uh, I've, uh, I thank you for those products. I won't repeat them back to you. So I decided I would try something uh, maybe a little bit different. And just for a few minutes, I'd like to suspend judgment on what any of us really think to be the true regarding the status of um, the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship. And instead, uh, really think about what might be a shared future where the U.S. and China collaborate to build upon existing uh, Asia-Pacific community of peace and prosperity. Uh, but in order to advance a shared future, we need to, first of all, acknowledge that there are areas of divergence, uh, and if uh, not understood and if not managed, can cause danger, dangerous friction in the security environment. As well, we should also examine the many, many areas where we converge and continue to build upon those. So think about it for a minute. What would this shared future look like, and what would have to occur for it to be a reality? I think it is worth contemplating because while competition between the United States and China is inevitable, a conflict is not. But I think we must begin, as I said, by acknowledging areas where China and U.S. perspectives diverge. There's been a lot of discussion around President Obama's 21st century security vision, or rebalance, pivot some call it, towards the Asia Pacific. Some in China have expressed to me that the rebalance is a continuation of an ongoing effort to contain their rise through military power. Now, I've addressed this with my Chinese counterparts in, in the good, friendly sessions that we have, and I've even gone as far as to say, hey, if this was a containment strategy, it wouldn't look like this. The rebalance is not just a security or defense-centered policy. The rebalance encompasses and must encompass all aspects of our government's efforts to include diplomatic, economic and political as well as security and it reflects a recognition that the United States success in the 21st century will to a large extent depend on what happens in this critically important region of the world. The rebalance is an intentional effort based on a strategy of collaboration and cooperation, a strategy to reinforce economic openness, peaceful resolution of disputes, and a respect for universal rights and freedoms. Uh, it's also based on the reality that the United States and the future of Asia are inextricably linked together into the future. So to pursue this vision, the United States has implemented the strategy, you've all read it, it's multidimensional, strengthening our alliances, deepening our partnerships with emerging powers, building a stable, productive, and constructive relationship with China, empowering regional institutions, and helping build a regional economic and security architecture that can sustain shared prosperity. 
Rebalance is long-term. It's a strategic commitment to ensure that U.S. access and peace and prosperity in the world's most vital and dynamic region are maintained. Now, as the chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Dempsey said recently in China, uh, the rebalance is about three mores. It's about more interest, more engagement, and more assets. Our alliances and relationships in the region have been and will remain the foundation of our rebalance strategy. These alliances are also occasionally a subject of friction with the Chinese, who believe, who have told me they believe that they are relics of past World War II and Cold War efforts. From my military commander's perspective, I can tell you that these alliances bring with them years of mutual trust and respect, significant interoperability, significant information sharing, a common view of regional security landscapes and challenges, and they provide a good basis from which multilateral relationships can grow. And we're seeing some of that. All of these continue to underpin U.S. security objectives in the Asia Pacific for decades to come. The Pacific Ocean does not separate us from Asia. It connects us. Our forward presence, our forward military presence, is focused on freedom of action, open access to Asia's maritime domain, the maintenance of peace and stability, and the respect for international law. Within the maritime domain, the U.S. perspective is that ensuring freedom of navigation is critical to the interest and our interest for unimpeded commerce and continued peace and stability in the region. The Chinese, along with a number of other states, have an expansive definition of the rights of coastal states to place limits on military activities in the 200 nautical mile exclusive zones, including routine military operations as well as exercises. Now, currently, we are closely monitoring the maritime actions in the South China and East China Seas, where China's territorial claims overlap those of several of its neighbors. The United States opposes the use of coercion, intimidation, threats, or force by any claimant to advance its claims. And the U.S. believes that all parties should pursue their territorial claims and accompanying rights in the maritime domain in accordance with international law. Now, cybersecurity is another growing challenge to our relationship where it is essential for the United States and China to develop an understanding of acceptable behavior. This has become a key point and a key area of concern in our discussions with China at all levels of our government. And U.S. businesses are speaking out about their serious concerns about sophisticated, targeted theft of confidential business information and proprietary technologies through cyber intrusion, some of it emanating from China. Now, the United States and China are among the world's largest cyber actors. And it's vital that we continue a sustained, meaningful dialogue on these critical issues. Now, after all that, you may point to me and say I'm rather pessimistic on the U.S. and China relationship. But actually, I do believe that the areas of convergence between our nations far outweigh the areas of divergence. First, it's my belief that neither of our two nations desire conflict, especially armed conflict. But as we move forward, the U.S. must recognize that China will increasingly play a more significant role in the regional and international security environment. And China will must recognize that the U.S. is a Pacific power and will continue to play a role in ensuring continued peace and prosperity in this area, which is critical to our national interest. The mutual gains from an expanding economic relationship will continue to pull us closer. 
Now, starting with, the, you know, with Secretary Clinton and most recently with President uh, Xi Jinping, both have said the Pacific Ocean is big enough for all of us, and I believe that's true. Pacific Ocean is the largest uh, object on the face of the earth, uh, and nowhere is that more important than in our economic relationship. Almost every Asian country now builds continued participation in China's economic growth into its own strategy for future prosperity, as does the United States. Now, barring some kind of miscalculation, I believe economic forces will continue to draw us together and hopefully constraining and dampening any tendencies towards conflict. China has also become to play a more active and prominent role in the international community. Since 1977, when I uh, entered commission service, China's membership in formal international organizations has more than doubled, while its membership in international non-governmental organizations has soared. Over the course of the last decade, China has sought entry into several important global institutions, including the World Trade Organization and the nuclear non-proliferation regime, both of which the U.S. fully supported. We also agree on the subject of denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula. Just last month, Secretary Kerry met with State Councilor Yang Cheshi, reaffirming China's commitment to denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And of course, the U.S. and China continue to work closely together on addressing such threats as HIV and AIDS, and pandemic diseases. Both nations have a public-private partnership that seek to leverage business and government resources in both the U.S. and China to promote advanced technologies, collaboration, sustainable development, and, of course, the healthcare sector. And our Department of Defense is participating in the recently established Cybersecurity Working Group with the Chinese in order to raise our concerns and develop a constructive dialogue. The China Foreign Ministry has stated that China is willing, on the basis of the principles of mutual respect and trust, to have constructive dialogue and cooperation on the cyber issues, and we look forward to that dialogue. And finally, there seems to be a real appetite to deepen the military-to-military -military dialogue and build on those areas on which we do converge. We must keep improving our channels of communication and demonstrate practical cooperation on issues that matter to both sides. In our, all of our military-to-military -military engagements, we are making good progress, building on the positive momentum achieved last year. Chairman Dempsey recently had positive meetings during his first trip to China, which paralleled the visits, the experience that I had last year. During a joint press conference, General Fang, their chairman, announced his willingness to advance cooperation by deepening practical cooperation in counterterrorism, anti-piracy, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, logistics, and military medicine, all of areas which we find significant convergence. Now, I believe the best hope for sustained bilateral cooperation will come from strategically identifying those areas where our interests overlap and building over time greater understanding and trust between our two armed forces. Our approach is to manage friction and disruptive competition and increase areas of congruence. I see three key essentials to our future. First, both China and the United States would recognize that as regional and global leaders, we must take into account the considerations and interests of other Asia-Pacific nations. As leaders, we cannot be victims of history. We must move beyond our individual differences to bring consensus to issues that threaten regional stability and future prosperity. 
we must recognize that conflict between us is not in our best interest or best interest of the world. As regional and global re leaders, we would partner with other nations to address regional security challenges such as piracy, terrorism, proliferation, pandemic disease. Second, China and the United States would work jointly with the community of nations to assure access to the shared domains through universally accepted standards. In the shared domains of cyber and space where the norms of operation have not been established, the U.S. and China would work with other partner nations in an effort to identify acceptable worldwide standards and practices. These efforts would allow us to develop a deeper understanding of how each government is organized to handle these issues to including adopting common vocabulary and common principles. Now finally, China would increase its participation in military-to-military -military engagements. And with others, not just the U.S., but with others across the region and around the globe. And this will build a foundation of trust and mutual understanding. We're making progress, and we're out and about increasing military-to-military -military contact with each other. And things like the U.S.-China dialogue forums, such as our military maritime consultant meetings, they give us routine operations for us to get together, to plan, to talk about the things that we diverge on, and to consult with each other. This kind of interaction can ultimately help us prevent some junior officer on either side from making a miscalculation in a tactical situation that will undermine and or determine the future of our security environment in ways that we hadn't anticipated. Next year, we look forward to having China join our Rim of the Pacific exercise. It's the world's largest international maritime exercise and one that seeks to promote cooperation not only in the Pacific but throughout the region uh, among many, many nations. I think last year there was 22 nations that participated. So in a shared future, China would engage in multilateral military exercises with countries across the region to improve operability and build confidence between nations. So let me ask you this, is such a shared future achievable? Uh, there are those who would predict that it may be or it may not. But what would derail it? What would prevent us from realizing it? First, miscommunication. We must have continuous, sustained channels of communication that can be drawn upon in the event of crisis. We must continue to seek opportunities to have more robust, more predictable, and more candid dialogue about current and future security concerns. Second, a miscalculation. The U.S. and China are likely to remain competitors, but we do not need to be antagonists. This means identifying strategic areas where our two countries can cooperate while recognizing frankly and opening, openly that the areas where we will continue to differ and that we have to manage those. Reaching this kind of shared future will require a lot of hard work on both sides. Results won't come quickly, and there will be fits and starts but payoff will be immense. Military power does not have to be used to be useful. We should manage our differences, expand our cooperation, and work together to ensure that China and the U.S. fully participate in the international system. I will end this evening much the way I began by pointing out that nothing short of a more peaceful, stable, and prosperous world for our children and our grandchildren should be acceptable to the U.S. and China. Indeed, this common ground should be enough for both of us to build on. As I look around and see all of you here tonight, I'm humbled again that I have the opportunity to share these views. 
thank you for the kind invitation, and I look forward to, to having a discussion with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for those, those, um, those comments, and I think everyone in this room agrees that we need a, a shared future, and military-to-military -military relations are, are critical to that. When I talk about kind of what the threats to America are, I always say terrorism, economic crisis, <clears throat> pandemic, anti-piracy, and climate change. And you mentioned four of those five. And I know in an interview you did after a speech I think you gave at Harvard, you said that I think the greatest <clears throat> security threat to PACOM's area is climate change. Can you talk about that and what we, what the implications of climate change are for the security environment in PACOM's area and what we should be doing? Yeah. Well, certainly when I made those comments, I didn't want to enter into the political debate on what the meaning of climate change <laughs> is. Uh, that's not my lane and certainly uh, I'm not a scientist, uh, nor do I uh, look at it from those terms. What I do look at, though, is a, an area of the world. Today, there's about s almost 7 billion people in the world. Uh, some say that in, the next, uh, in this next century, that'll grow to 9 or 10 billion people. And of that 10 billion people, about 70% of them will live in the PACOM area of responsibility. And as the world becomes more industrialized, particularly in Asia, uh, and people are moving to where the jobs are, they move towards the coast. Uh, I think of right now about 80% of the people in the world live within about 200 miles of the coast, and that's increasing. Uh, the vast populations that live in, the, in what I would call the littoral regions uh, are, are, even as we see it today, are more and more susceptible to things that might disturb the security environment. And one aspect of things that can disturb it would certainly be uh, things that are brought on by our, by our natural environment, uh, by storms, uh, by tsunamis. I mean, just if you think about the number of people who have lost their lives in, uh, in the Pacific AOR in, in since 2008, I think there was close to 280,000 people. And they were all due to some kind of natural disaster mm -hmm. that was beyond much more than was ever thought of in any other security conflict. So the, the, the point of my remarks were is that I think it's, that it's a responsibility that we have, not only me, but the military leaders of other countries, is to look forward in the future and to see how uh, changes in our environment uh, will impact our security environment and to be able to use, and to be able to use the, the things that we have in military uh, power, I guess, to be able to position them and to use them when people need it in a good way. So I think an example was uh, a few years ago when we had the tsunami in Japan. Uh, the, the Japanese people ultimately recovered magnificently from that. But it, 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 in the first few days, hours and days and weeks after that event, uh, you could see the impact of a military forces, not only from the U.S., but from other countries, that had the ability to communicate, ability to bring uh, command and control, ability to bring uh, initial response uh, to those regions, paid huge dividends in being able to allow the Japanese people to kind of get up on their step and to get back into the fight, so to speak. And if you play this across seven billion people uh, throughout the uh, Asia, Indo-Asia Pacific, I call it, because I, I look from India to, 
to California, then I think we have to add that into our calculation of how we develop our security environment. Area for cooperation with China? Absolutely, we're already doing it uh, in, in multiple venues from whether it's uh, uh, healthcare or, or flood control or, or anything along the humanitarian disaster response we are seeing, making big gains in our ability to, to work together, not only bilaterally, but in multilateral forms. The, um, you mentioned in your, in your remarks that we, our position is no coercion in, in, uh, in either the East China Sea mm -hmm. or the South China Sea and any, any of the disputed areas. The Chinese repeatedly assert that in, in uh, the Diaoyu Islands and in the Nanshan, the Shisha, they are reactive. They are responding. The analogy as an NFL fan, my analogy is always the guy who gets flagged is never the guy who commits the personal foul. It's the guy who gets the retaliation for the personal foul. And the Chinese basically say that's what's going on here. The Japanese changed the rules. They changed the rules on holding the, the trawler captain. They changed the rules when they purchased the, uh, the Diaoyu Islands. The Filipinos and the, and the Vietnamese are con constantly trying to push the envelope. How do you respond to them when, you, when uh, they say this? Well, first, it's, it's pretty clear U.S. policy that we don't take sides on territorial disputes. If, if we did, we'd be taking sides on a lot of them around the world. Uh, some of our own, I, I would imagine. Uh, and so we don't take sides. Uh, but what we do say is that uh, there are uh, international mechanisms to deal with this and that, uh, that we should be supportive. We, the globe should be supportive of using these international mechanisms. I mean, it clear, seems to me it's really the only peaceful way ahead. Uh, and that uh, as we work through these, through, the, through those international systems, that uh, there shouldn't be uh, conflict, there shouldn't be coercion. Uh, and uh, that's from any party. And so that's kind of the position we have, and we make sure that that's clear to not only uh, our, our Chinese counterparts, but as well as our, uh, our allies and part other partners in the region. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about Taiwan for a second? I've always wondered, what are the implications? When, when you war game, I guess the term is when you war game against the Taiwan contingency, against the PLA, and the PLA war games against us, you know, and now you're trying to build this cooperative relations. How, how kind of destructive is kind of the war gaming when then you want to have dinner with them next week and talk about this shared future? Well, first, I don't know what the PLA war game against, and I won't comment on what we war game against here. Uh, uh, but, but I would say that, that uh, you know, pragmatically from a military perspective, that all militaries have to continually look at um, the weapon systems and capabilities are being built around the world and the fact that they will proliferate and that they may proliferate to places that, that uh, would, would threaten uh, U.S. interests, may threaten Chinese interests at some point in time, uh, that have to be dealt with. And so, you know, keeping an eye on that, uh, de those developments and, and the proliferation, I think, is in the best interest of not only the United States, but of China as well. Mm -hmm. What would happen, and I guess the, the, your answer, I hope it's not, this is speculative and you can't comment on speculative uh, events, but what would happen if 
you know, we've seen this enormous improvement in cross-strait relations. You know, the ECFA, increasing Chinese investment in Taiwan, Taiwan investment in China, this flow of people, the marriage of mainland people with Taiwan people. You're seeing kind of a social and economic integration. So what would kind of PACOM think if there was a, what I would call a cessation of hostilities agreement under the terms that uh, the mainland and kind of President Ma have already roughly agreed on, which is no, unifi no reunification, no independence, no use of force. Mm -hmm. So you have this, which kind of, and part of this deal would be the, um, you know, continued kind of some U.S. continued involvement with Taiwan. What would that do in terms of the way you think about the future of PACOM's responsibility? Well, certainly, as you look at the, at the strategic area of our relationship with China and you look regionally and globally, uh, any area where there appears to be divergence that, that is solved peacefully uh, is, it can only be good for, I think, US, not only U.S.-China relationships, but also for regional and global relationships as well. Uh, so, you know, the, I won't go through the... U.S. policy on the Taiwan Relation Act and the three communiques and, and all those things that you are all very familiar with. Uh, but we do welcome a, a peaceful solution that they can all agree to in, in that particular scenario. And it, it would certainly, a peaceful solution that was, that was uh, compatible with the desires of both sides of the straits would be something from a PACOM commander's perspective that would be uh, very much so welcome. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Reading the Pentagon report, uh, the, the buried deep in the Pentagon report on the PLA is this statement. It says, the official budget for China's internal security forces exceeds that of the PLA. The internal security budget exceeds that of the PLA. When you're thinking about dealing with the China, what does that kind of, what does that mean in terms of your dealing with them? Because you're dealing with them not obviously in terms of their internal security, but in terms of their external security. Well, I think that uh, as they apply resources to their defense, and they have to, at some point in time, I think they would hope they'd have to apply less and less to their internal security. It might make them have more available to do <laughs> other things uh, globally from a defense perspective. And I think that as, as China uh, continues to, uh, uh, I say, to emerge, it's probably not a great word, but to emerge, that, and they become more globally, economically involved, that they, we should expect that there will uh, be a desire on China's part to, to look outward, to look more globally, to look at where its security interests lie, just like any other mm -hmm. uh, global uh, country does, and to be able to put defense resources in places that ensure that their, uh, that their interests are looked out for. Uh, so we should, we should anticipate that in the future. We shouldn't be uh, afraid of it, or we shouldn't be uh, uh, too concerned as long as we end up, as long as we manage it properly. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about energy for a second. By 2020, the United States will be importing about as much energy as it exports. So we'll have, we'll basically be, be in balance and China will then be importing, I think, two thirds of its oil. And so much of our kind of, our, our naval projection was based upon our energy requirements. So as that changes, how are we kind of thinking about 
redeploying within the, the PACOM area? Well, we, we don't deploy in the PACOM area just for uh, energy security, even though it is, a, it, it is an important aspect of our overall national strategy. Uh, I think that, you know, a PACOM commander, I, 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 first of all, I very much welcome the United States and becomes energy uh, independent as far as we can get. Uh, it sure makes my job a lot easier. I think it will, uh, uh, it will uh, over time, it could over time shape the, the, some of the places that we go with our military, but I don't think it will change any significantly in the Asia Pacific. Uh, the Asia Pacific military position is there to maintain a, uh, a sense of stability that underpins those six, pro six issues I outlined in my talk to you which is, starts with ensuring our allies and ensuring, mm -hmm. I mean, we really have, if you think about it, the U.S. military has provided an underpinning of security in the Asia Pacific since World War II, uh, and we continue to have significant interest here. We don't see that changing in the long run. In terms of our, obviously it's not within your command, but in terms of the Mideast, you know, our reliance on Mideast oil declines to virtually nothing. Chinese reliance on Mideast oil increases astronomically. Right. What does it mean for kind of PLAN projection of force? Right. Well, first I would say, and like I said, I'm not a Middle East expert, but we have many interests in the Middle East. One of them happens just to be uh, access to energy, so that we will still have to address over time. Uh, but as far as the access to energy piece, uh, I think that the, the PLA will have to, at some point in time, look at the the way their military is built and structured, and they will have to make some decisions about how they will go forward with that military so that they will become uh, more globally distributed in ways that allow them to look, look at things like energy supplies. And we see a little bit already. I mean, they already uh, have uh, fielded their first aircraft carrier, and it's just now in development, and I believe there's been an announcement of a second one. Uh, if I were them, that's what I'd do too. To build the airplane. I would because it, it's it's a power projection capability that that uh, that could go globally to look at their mm -hmm. uh, to, to look at stability for their interest. There's a big deal made about the the the, uh, the the first carrier and the subsequent carriers that they're now announcing. Isn't this the 19th country that has aircraft carriers? Doesn't Italy and Argentina and other countries have it? And there's it's a big headline that China suddenly has finally got an aircraft carrier. Isn't it, is there some disproportionality in kind of the focus on China's aircraft carrier versus all the other countries that have them? Well, I can't tell you the number of countries that have them off the top of my head, but there are a lot of countries that have aircraft carriers, and they use them for multiple purposes from, you know, control of the sea lanes to symbols of national power, uh, humanitarian disaster response, those types of things. Uh, I think China is getting to the points like the U.S. You can't do something that's not a big deal. And so, and this is, and, and this is, a, I think, an important thing that we talk to the, our Chinese counterparts in the military about is that, is that you are now assuming a status of regional and potentially global power, and, the, and your military power can be an important element of that. And so as you go forward, you have to really start thinking about how you're going to employ, to, to employ that, that power or the perception of power. Because, uh, you know, the image is important, particularly when it comes to militaries. Mm -hmm. 
the um, kind of going back to the, the, the Nanshan issue, the Paracelsian Spratley is the Nansha Shisha. The, since I think it's 1998, we've seen China resolve most of its land boundary disputes. You know, and a lot of people would say the resolution was on terms, I think the majority of scholars would say, no matter, this is an audience, I'm very risky to say this, but I think most would say it's, it's on terms pretty favorable to the neighboring country, that China did not use its power, you know, use its, its rise to, to negotiate unfavorable settlements. India is an exception, but I think the other countries, they pretty much resolved the land borders. And then you have this inability mostly to resolve the maritime disputes. What, one of the differences, of course, is U.S. participation in, or Chinese perception of U.S. participation in the maritime disputes, whereas we were not participating in the land dispute. But what else is going on here that makes it so much tougher when we, we hear about peaceful development and these you know, whether it's the Diaoyu, uh, Diaoyu or the Nansha, the Shisha, they're, they're, it's, we don't see progress. Mm. Well, you know, the maritime domain, uh, you know, for, for centuries was considered kind of open to everyone. Uh, and there was plenty of protein supplies, fish, there was uh, no expectation that there would be energy supplies uh, under the, on the seabed, and there was really no good mechanism for people to start thinking about even how to get to them. There wasn't the technology known to get to them. Uh, and so over time, that's changed, and there's now, uh, I think, a desire by a lot of nations to secure their economic future by looking at what's on the seabed, and then their seabed equities are defined by things like land features. And then you come along and you do the uh, UNCLOS, the UN Law of the Sea, which gave all countries a way of kind of saying this is what is mined by international standards or not. Uh, and I think in the macro, that has worked pretty well around the globe. I think in the South China Sea, the, the Chinese uh, believe that that's, I think they believe that that's near term uh, history. And as they look back on it, they say, hey, there has been a, a traditional Chinese ownership of parts of this, this body of water that they consider their, their, their near seas is the term that they use. And they say, no, we, you, you can't rewrite the rules on history. Uh, so will they be able to so settle these uh, bilateral with these countries? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but I think that if you, because when you, and it's not just, again, it's just not the Chinese and others against others, it's many, many on many. If you take a look at the, a map of the Ch South China Sea and you draw the competing claims of all the countries on there, uh, I call it a chicken soup map. <laughs> it's very difficult to see where the noodles and the chicken soup are. How are you gonna sort through all that? And so I think the U.S. position is obviously right, is that, hey, we don't take sides on that, but it must be done peacefully, and you must work through this. So I think that's what has brought this to the forefront in a way that's become more and more obvious. Hmm. The Chinese have a different view than we do 
on activi permissible activities within the EEZ. And one of them falls squarely within um, PACOM's activities, which is running intelligence, military intelligence missions between the territorial sea at 12 miles and the EEZ at 200. We believe that that is accepted passage. The Chinese believe that it is not, that if you're conducting intelligence against the, I guess it's called the literal state, the, 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 the state right. whose EEZ it is, you're, you're, not, you're not supposed to be doing that. They also say that over the past years, we have increased surveillance and decreased distance, which is, and that feeds into the, the idea that, you know, we, you know, the, the pivot, the rebalance is really directed at China, and they use that. How do you respond to when they say to you, you're increasing your surveillance, you're running more ships, you're running more planes, and not only that, they're closer to our territory, 12-mile limit. Mm -hmm. Well, first let me talk about EEZs. Uh, if you took a map of the world and you drew the EEZs, of which the United States has, a, I think, the largest EEZs volume-wise of any country in the world, I, I would imagine, uh, and you drew a map of that world, every major choke point in the world would lie within the EZ. I think 35% of the oceans lie within the EZ. So the question is, is whether or not you want to uh, abrogate uh, your security concerns in 35% of the world to the nations, to the countries that are around the edges of those EZs. Uh, so uh, we, as the United States, we don't agree with that. We, we think it's not in our national interest and we don't think it's in the national interest of others. So as I tell my Chinese counterparts today, I believe we're having uh, counter piracy operations that are operating in the EZs of other people's country of which the Chinese are participating in. So to some degree, they're doing it. Uh, I also- uh, They would argue those are not directed against the literal right. state, that they're directed against pirates who are right. You know, right. there is a con an implicit consent. Yeah, but. and I also tell them that, you know, that REZs are open for your operations if, if you choose. And I believe that they will take us up on that if they choose to. Uh, and so- The Pentagon report says they have. Yeah. That they're, they're yeah. sending and submarines and right. surveillance and, and so, and, and from my perspective, that's kind of normal business for a, for a regional power to look at their security interests within the EZs. Uh, now to the question of, of what we do with our military forces in that area of the world, I, I asked, I was in Australia a, a few months ago sitting with one of their defense leaders and I sat down in a chair in his office and on the, on the wall behind him was a map of the world with Australia in the middle of the map. <laughs> and I thought of, and I looked at it and I said, that's amazing. I said, when I, it, it changed my whole perspective of the way that Australians were looking at their security interest and the way they view what's important in the world. So I told, went back to my staff in, in Honolulu and I said, I want you to have a map for every, every country we have in this region with their capital in the middle of that map. And when we sit down and talk about this country and their perspectives, I want you to put that map up, not the one from Washington, D.C. or the one that, that from there. So if you, if you do that in all of, first of all, start with our five allies, and you put their capital in the middle of a map, uh, the areas that we're operating in to support our allies are, in, from their view, are their littoral spaces, are, are their access to their interests. 
And so it's, it's a, and you have to do the same thing for Beijing. So the activities that we do from our exercises to our routine naval operations uh, are, are not to contain China or not to contain anyone else, it's to maintain a situational awareness in a, to ensure that we have a security environment that remains stable. You've talked in your remarks about the, what I would call near-term opportunities. We've seen since December a, a more positive attitude from the Chinese on the mill-mill side, in my view. Uh, and I think there's opportunities for more exchanges. You talked about the upcoming RIMPAC. But if you were to look out 15 years, could you identify a benchmark of what would sort of mark a higher quality U.S.-China military relationship and something we could work toward? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple for me. It's me being able to have the opportunity to just to pick up the phone beside my desk and to call my counterpart in Nanjing or Beijing and to say, hey, uh, Bob, I got an issue. What do you think? I have that pretty much with the 30-something nations that are in, in my AOR ability today. We're not there yet with the PRC or the PLA. And I think that will be a huge benchmark, but we're not, we're not there yet. Why do you think they won't agree to something that seems to me almost a no-brainer? I don't know if they don't agree to it. I just think that, uh, that as they, you know, their system is not the same as ours. Their, uh, their military uh, hierarchy is not set up in a joint nature the same as ours. So we have to be cautious not to imprint ourselves on, on the Chinese and say this is the way they have to respond. So we have to kind of work through how we get there. We also, I think, to add to your, your, to your comment is, to, is, is we've got to go beyond, at some point in the future, beyond just kind of high-level discussions, which are very important but where we really get a quality interaction between allies and partners and friends is when we bring it down to the young petty officer level, to the young officer level. And that would be a, a, a huge win. And we're going to get there. I mean, when, we, if, if, when the Chinese come to this rim of the Pacific exercise next year, there'll be a lot of opportunities to kind of start that. So I'm optimistic. Dan Rosen. Thank you, Admiral, very much. Dan Rosen from the Rhodium Group. Um, you said in your remarks at the podium that uh, most nations, and, and presumably the ones in your region, have built in the assumption of continued participation in China's economic growth into their strategy that's strategically hardwired into how they're proceeding. Um, there have been a number of instances in recent years which some people have alarmingly described as China weaponizing its economy and how it uses it with its neighbors. For instance, uh, uh, blocking rare earths exports to Japan, a critical input for their industrial economy. Um, I'm curious if, you, if you're in a position to elaborate a little bit more about the economic variable and how China might uh, attempt to use it in ways that might affect um, your remit and what you've got to do in terms of security. Well, that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to give you. Um, I, I'm not. On the economic side of the, all, of, all of government issues, uh, I'm kind of the receiver of bad news when it occurs, if you, if you know what I mean. Uh, but my sense is that I'm not a businessman, but, uh, but I believe that the, that the Chinese businessmen are pretty good, and women are pretty good businessmen and women. And that, uh, uh, that as they look forward, as you look at their national strategy and they're looking for a a rejuvenation of, the, of, the, of their nation as a great nation by the middle of this century. And, and part of what underpins that is their, in fact, a huge part of it is economic development. 
So how they use that as an instrument of national power, uh, other organizations, hopefully that'll be controlled by other organizations other than the mill-to-mill -mill piece of it. Mike Lampkin. Thank you very much, Admiral, um, for your service and your remarks. I'm David Lampton and head China Studies at Johns Hopkins. Um, Chairman Dempsey made some remarks in March, actually, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and <clears throat> a close paraphrase would be, uh, we, we will have and do have fewer resources. We will have to do less. But then I think he said we will not do less well. But how does this resource constraint for the Department of Defense, not, not to mention the rest of the country, bear on our capacity to place dis more relative resource in your, your zone of operation? Yes. What's the impact on the pivot? Do we run the risk of talking with a bigger stick than we have? Well, of course, you, uh, Chairman Dempsey has to speak for the entire joint force. I speak for, for PACOM. But <laughs> if, if you take a look at what happened to the U.S. military in the last couple of decades, uh, not bad, but we changed to be able to address uh, major conflicts in the Middle East. And to some degree, our military, I think, was reshaped to do that. So as we see that those conflicts coming down and then we're faced with some of the more pressing physical issues of our country, uh, with a military that has grown quite a bit in the last couple of decades to respond to those, then we have to ask ourselves, what, what is that, what's the future of this military look like? And we do this after every major conflict we go through. So this isn't new for us, it's just sometimes how it's implemented is, is, is a little different. Uh, so after every major conflict, we will find some decrease in the size of the military and a reshaping which I think is healthy for the country and healthy for our security because it keeps us from being in the old mode and makes us have to think about what the future is. So in that regard, uh, in it, but it's always painful. It's always hard to come down. It's always hard, change is always hard. So we're in the middle of a pretty rapid change at this point in time. So the question of, of how that impacts the uh, rebalance of the Asia Pacific, I think President Obama did a nice job of setting, teeing this up as about a year ago in that strategy. I mean, it's a 14-page document that, uh, for a military guy like that, if it's 1,000 pages, I get through 14. So the 14 pages, and it clearly indicated that as we go forward, where, are, where the most critical interest for the United States will lie in the future. So in all of our discussions that we're having about what this reshaped military looks like, a, pivot, a cornerstone of that discussion is ensuring that the rebalance to the Asia-Pacific remains viable, it remains visible, that remains credible, and it remains enduring. Dick Solomon. Thank you, uh, Admiral Dick Solomon, the Rand Corporation, and uh, I also serve on the CNO's executive panel. So uh, this is a kind of unfair question. It's a bit out of your lane, but uh, this morning I was at a conference dealing with uh, the U.S.-China economic relationship, and it's a lot of happy talk, a lot of positive uh, view of the future. And uh, I'm just struck by the two faces that China seems to present to the world and to us. That is, on the economic side, a lot of positive future, but uh, on the security side, not just the growth of their military, but here we've seen a situation in recent years where they have 
territorial disputes virtually are on all their borders. And uh, my question for you, which again may be hard to answer, is do you think the political leadership really has control of the military? Is there a, is there a conscious two-phase two strategy or, or is the PLA, as it uh, has more resources, just flexing itself? Uh, and uh, we've seen a number of provocations that seem to have embarrassed the, the political leadership. So how do you see that uh, interplay? Well, first, I don't have direct insight into how the PLA gets their orders from, uh, from Beijing. Uh, I would say that what I do think about, though, is that their structure is different than ours. Uh, first, uh, you know, I have a clear commander-in-chief, have a clear direction from a from a national security establishment that's that's quick, that's agile, that's can it has good vision about what's happening, even down to some of the detail level, which I think is important in some of these more critical issues. Uh, so I have a president that I know is the commander in chief, and I and so I, that I can move out on. Um, I'm also when I take my oath to office, I take it not to a person or to a party. I take it to the Constitution of the United States. That's it. And so that's a pretty important, powerful distinction. American people should look at the oath sometimes that we take. It really is, uh, and for those of us who watch over that oath, it's very important to us what we're doing, what we're, what we're here for. Uh, I don't know that how the PA, what they take their oath to. Uh, my sense is that they, uh, because of the way they are organized, that they're aligned around support of the party, which I'm sure they think is as important as our Constitution. And so, but it is a different, uh, different kind of alignment. Uh, I would say that, uh, at least on the surface, it appears that the President Xi Jinping has, um, has moved in the last uh, few months after his taking over to, uh, to get a, uh, a better, I would say not control, but a better, uh, a better handle on the, the, the PR, PLA, the activities of the PLA and the command and control of the PLA. I know that he has addressed some corruption issues in the PLA, and he has visibly shown that he is the uh, he, has, he is the head of the PLA, uh, and that um, uh, uh, and that you know he has a history of a family history of being involved in the PLA. So I think he understands it. TK, TK Chan. Um, I'm TK Chan. I'm uh, the partner the, with the New York office of uh, Zhongwen Law Firm, which is one of the top three law firms uh, from China. Um, according to Wikipedia, uh, only nine countries have uh, carriers in service, and none of them have more than one, except the United States, which has 10, and Italy, which has two. So to have the second one would be a big deal, I guess. So I, any <laughs> comments on that? Okay. Uh, Russia has only one carrier. Is that true? Well, I, it, it I, probably I, depends on your definition of aircraft carrier. So, <laughs> we, it, yeah, I, I think Wikipedia may yeah. may so, not be a good source on this one, TK. Tom so, Kane. So it depends on your definition, but there, there's many more than nine aircraft carriers. Now, if you're talking about, yeah, but no, no, I'm talking about there's more than that of different kinds, whether they're helicopter carriers or vertical takeoff carriers, there are different types of those. Governor Kane. 
Admiral, thank you very much for your comments, Tom Kane, uh, head of Carnegie Corporation at the moment, I guess. But the, um, I'm wondering how well do you feel right now that you know your counterparts and similarly your colleagues know their counterparts and are there channels, are there forward channels or back channels where you can communicate in case a real problem arises? Yeah, great question. Our, uh, how well do we know them? Uh, I think that uh, our uh, engagement with them is episodic at this point in time. It's relatively formatted. Uh, so for instance, we'll meet each year and we'll put a dialogue of meetings together for the next year and then those get approved at the, you know, the highest levels of government for us to go forward. And that's good, good. I mean, it's good progress. But in the end, you know, I think if looking 10, 15 years down the road, uh, to, to realize where I think we could realize, that needs to broaden and deepen, uh, and it needs to be uh, not episodic, but routine. Charles Freeman. Thank you, April. Uh, Charles Freeman from PepsiCo. You talked about the need for trust between the militaries, and there's been a lot of talk about over the years about the need to develop strategic trust. But trust can be defined differently. And there's, there are, are folks that say, well, the, uh, what we're looking for in terms of trust from the Chinese is clarity about capability, transparency about capability. And the Chinese are looking for you know, clarity about intent or transparency on intent. And you can disagree with that that construct if, you, if you'd like. but. Is there a way to bridge those two different definitions? How, do, how does one get there? Well, it is interesting to think that there's different ways th to think about trust. Uh, and I think you characterized it uh, accurately. I think our trust translates to transparency. And, and quite honestly, it's something I think that the PLA and the, my counterparts have a hard time understanding. It doesn't translate well, you say, well, to be more transparent and they go, okay, what do you, I'm sitting here, what else, you know, what more you want me to do? Um, as I articulate to them, I say, you need to be more transparent about your military, the intent of your military, uh, what, you, what you're gonna do with it, what your end states are. Uh, and I think they understand that. Uh, my sense is that on the trust side for us, or for them to us, is that they uh, have this, uh, since at least now that we have been militarily so superior for so long that this makes them reticent to kind of uh, when do we when how fast do we move forward it makes them reticent to have that that type of trust and so we just have to demonstrate that to each other uh, and I think it'll it'll take forums to be able to allow that just to do that and the forums are there we just have to make use of them Professor Rigger Thanks, I'm Shelley Rigger from Davidson College. Um, I realize that this is the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, but I wanted to ask you a question about Japan because I think <laughs> the uh, changing kind of military focus and orientation in Japan is a factor in U.S.-China relations. The U.S. has for decades really been encouraging Japan to step up and take more responsibility and play a larger role in its own defense and in the last few years, Japan has actually really pursued that with more vigor than they previously had. And so on the one hand, this is a good thing 
for the US and for the alliance and for regional stability, but it also introduces a new variable and it introduces a, a new set of concerns for China that maybe previously were a little bit elided or, or muted. And I wonder where you see from, from where you sit as you know, the head of the US military effort in the region, what's the right balance, what's the right level for Japan's participation in your world that keeps the two sides even, um, the, the, the Chinese anxiety about Japan, but also the US need for Japan and other allies in the region to, to do their part? Well, again, I would not comment on how the Japanese feel about what they need for their own security. So it's kind of up to the Japanese people to decide that. But I agree with you that it is an important aspect in the balance of power in the region. Uh, you know, from the PACOM commander perspective, the, the Japanese-US uh, alliance is a cornerstone of our security arrangement in Northeast Asia. Uh, and we have, over time, uh, assisted them where they requested it in, in helping them move forward with a more uh, capable uh, self-defense force. Uh, and it is more capable. And as you said, they have made uh, good strides a, a, as we go, go forward. And I, I think that the, the region uh, uh, needs just to recognize that uh, Japan has the grow, grown cap capability and capacity. Um, and I think that uh, uh, China as well will have to recognize that. Uh, and uh, hopefully it will be a stabilizing factor rather than a destabilizing factor. Professor Gold. Uh, Tom Gold, University of California, Berkeley. Thank you also very much. Uh, I had questions about, a question about two different geographic regions that, that, that fall under your, your purview, uh, both North Korea and Myanmar. Uh, we. What, what sense do you get from talking with your Chinese counterparts about their attitude to manage these two uh, potentially uh, unstable or destabilizing, uh, destabilizing areas? Especially we, we think or we rely, I think, to a certain extent on the Chinese ability to manage the DPRK. And now I think they felt that they were able to manage Myanmar. But now that seems to be slipping from their grip, especially with the leader in Washington this week. So I'm wondering if you've gotten a sense from talking with your people there, with your counterparts there, about how they're seeing these two different um, regions. Well, quite, uh, quite honestly, we haven't had any dialogue on Burma. Uh, and so we, uh, uh, from a military perspective, and, and the U.S. military-to-military -military relationship, uh, you know, is very, uh, it, it hasn't been defined yet of where we'll go forward in, in that regard. So most of the activity has been done at this point in time has been the, the diplomatic area. Uh, now on, on the North Korea Peninsula, I think that we generally converge, as I talked about in my speech, we all uh, recognize that denuclearization is the end state for the North Korea Peninsula. And, and they will, uh, when I meet with them, they will have that same dialogue. So I don't think we diverge there. I think for them, they've had a relationship the PLA with the North Korean military for some time. And so there is that ability to, I think in the long run, to influence the North Korean military if, uh, if, if that was necessary. But certainly it's not in the best interest of the South Koreans or the Chinese or the Americans to have instability on, that, on the Korean peninsula. 
And ultimately, uh, I think the, a peaceful resolution on that peninsula, uh, China will play an important role in that part, in, in that resolution, as will the U.S., as will South Korea. On Burma, remember that there was a, I'm sure if it was in Burma or in Laos, that there was a 11, I believe a dozen Chinese sailors who were more or less executed by a Burmese drug lord. I don't remember if it was in Burma or in one of the neighboring countries, but um, they then identified through, through kind of their intelligence folks in all these countries, identified um, who it was, found out where he was, contemplated a drone attack, and then decided they would capture him, repatriate him to China, and then he was tried and executed. Um, Two questions. One is, did they have that capability, the drone capability? I mean, without revealing classified information, is could they, could they do it? And then second part of the question is, if it were 11 sailors under your command, what would you have done? Well, uh, I always take good care of my sailors. <laughs> As far as whether they have the capability to do that, I, it would be, I'd just be speculating on whether or not they, they could, so I, so I won't do that. Uh, certainly, uh, as you look into the future, though, uh, of, of many nations, as, as we get into unmanned vehicles and unmanned reconnaissance, uh, this type of technology is going to proliferate. We're going to just have to deal with it and the consequences of it. And if it were your soldiers? Your sailors? Well, like I said, I'd take care of them. Take care. <laughs> uh, other questions? I can't see who's got this. Right here. Is that Maylee? Hi, Ann Lee with NYU. Thanks so much, Admiral, for your comments. I was just wondering um, what you thought about cybersecurity, because you had mentioned that as an issue. And Thomson Reuters had just come out with an article saying that the U.S. government is the largest buyer of hacking technology and for offensive uses to spy on other nations. And so given that we accuse China of uh, a lot of cybersecurity issues, how do we navigate these negotiations with them if we are also, you know, if not a bigger user than they are of this stuff? That's a great question. Uh, in fact, when we have had, you know, informal dialogues that I've had, you know, this is the first response is, hey, you're the cyber superpower, uh, you know, you're attacking our networks uh, just as much as, as we, you are, we are. So I think you have to, for me, you have to kind of divide it up into chunks. Uh, one is uh, intellectual, intellectual property rights and how a free and open uh, cyber world uh, has to have rules that you play by. If you think about it, of all the domains, there's the maritime domain, there's the air domain, there's the space, uh, I can think of a couple others, but the, the one we created, the only man-made created one is cyber. Uh, the rest of them have some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of uh, you know, earthly, earthly quality to them or spatial quality, but we created it. And when we created it, we didn't create a set of rules to, to operate by. And so when you look at the, uh, the way we approach cyber and the way we allow free and unencumbered access to it, it has, it has uh, places of, problems where you can get at it pretty easy. And so 
to, the, to where you have any state, whether it's China or some other state, that's, that's potentially sponsoring the theft of international uh, intellectual properties, uh, that's one discussion to have. And how do you stop that? And what are the international norms that you have to establish to prevent that? Uh, and, and because it becomes, I mean, it's illegal in, in almost mo most countries, right? So that has to be addressed. Uh, the question of how cyber and then on the, the, the military uses of it and all things you're, you're alluding to there, I won't get into any details on that, but I think that's kind of a different argument. It's a much smaller, much more segmented part of the discussion than what we generally have a tendency to kind of group all this together. Janice Siglin, if you're somebody way in the back, I, five years ago I couldn't see there. Certainly now I can't. But all the way in the back, there's a hand. Uh, Identify. Get, get your distance glasses. Uh, Herbert Levin. Uh, Herb. Admiral, uh, you, you have described uh, the need for American military resources in the area. You think the Chinese uh, are improving, and if they get aircraft carriers, that's just normal as you grow up, and you're happy that the Japanese are building up their military establishment. It sounds a little bit like what we used to call in the old days an arms race. Um, could you please describe for us the uh, international climate and diplomatic initiatives which might uh, lead to a reduction in military budgets, including the American military budget in the area which you would publicly support? Was that the answer? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a lot of questions in there, I, I think. Um, let me see if I can back up on the, on the this, if I try to find the core of the question. Uh, the, the question is, is whether or not uh, the activities of both China and the U.S. and other players in the area is creating a uh, increasing militarization of the Asia Pacific. And, and the answer is it's already the most militarized area in the world. Uh, in my area of responsibility, seven of the ten largest armies, all the largest navies, five of the declared nuclear powers are there. So we're kind of we're kind of there. And so, the question of whether or not we can find avenues to demilitarize, of course we should. Uh, and the the real question there is, can you create a security environment that allows you to to have a a, a fabric of security that allows it to withstand the bumps and, and crises without breaking that fabric that has to be mended back together by military, military power. So there's been speculation about, well, can you build a NATO in Europe? Well, I was in NATO in my last job, and uh, first of all, NATO's a little tiny, you know, those, Europe's a little tiny speck compared to, uh, geographically compared to this area, and it's, it's so incredibly uh, culturally, economically, socially, militarily diverse across the Asia Pacific. There's not really, a, 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 there's not really a, a mechanism like a NATO. Could there be in, in, in decades from now? I don't know the answer to that. But right now, what you have is you have a, a number of uh, bilateral relationships. You have a growing number of multilateral relationships, and the military power behind those relationships is what provides, at least so far has provided stability in the Asia Pacific for that network to kind of hang together and to not be broken by these uh, periodic friction that will occur inside the security environment. So I think we have to be careful 
not to uh, not to wish away that problem too quickly, and that we have to that there is an element of military power that's used properly that has a stabilizing impact on the security, the economic environment, not a destabilizing one. But it has to be watched carefully. I think that is the perfect response to end the program with. <laughs> uh, it is absolutely. Thank you so much for a wonderful tour de force.